Hello, this is Leo Devine, welcoming you to this month's Religion Media Center podcast, the only podcast to place itself firmly in the space where religion and the media collide. And it's a space we're only too happy to inhabit and explore with a range of chat, interview, reflection, and comment. And as always, gathered around this vast, solid oak table before me, we've got a top team to do that. We've got journalist and veteran broadcaster Roger Bolton, academic Dr. Azim Ahmed, journalist Rosie Dawson, and writer and comedian Paul Carenza. So, team, what is on the agenda this month? Roger? I'll be talking to Rabbi Jonathan Romain, who's called for a Ukraine transport to get refugees into this country, but very few are coming. Why? I'll try and find out. Azim, what do you have for us? So I'm speaking to Dr. Pindajit Takar from the University of Wolverhampton. She's both the Director of Sikh and Punjabi Studies, as well as President of the Theology and Religious Studies UK Network. And Paul, you've got an exciting guest this month. Well, I have. We've got a star of Mot the Week and countless Radio 4 comedy shows. Milton Jones will be joining me uh, this time in a time when joy feels rather tricky to find, but like we need it more than ever. How do we find and spread joy when it's all been really rather gloomy? And we'll go a little bit deeper even, I think, to is there a philosophy of joy, a moral duty even to keep trying to seek and spread joy? A philosophy of joy. I really like that. We'd love to hear from you too. Let us know what you think and respond to the stories we're covering. And you can do that on Twitter using the extremely catchy and memorable at RelMedCenter. That's at RelMedCenter. And of course, please share the podcast as widely as you can. This month, we're starting with our journo's notebook, a chance to reflect on and have a good look behind some of the current stories. Rosie, who have you got with you today? Today I have with me Catherine Pepinster, a journalist and commentator specialising in religious affairs, and Cole Morton, who does interviews for the Mail on Sunday. He's got a new podcast called Can We Talk? And Fee Glover and Jane Garvey have raved about it, Leo, but we are not bitter. We are not bitter at all. Um, now, normally in this slot, we talk about specifically religious stories. But and before we do that, um, I'd just like to hear your reflections, Cole and Catherine, on the reporting from Ukraine, because it's it's difficult to talk about anything else and in fact to think about anything else in in the world of journalism other than the risks being taken by some of the journalists on the ground I wonder Cole what struck you in particular I I think uh I well I think what can you say that's positive about this I think you can say that it's hopefully changing people's perceptions of journalists and journalism and what we try to do but of course it's a, every single one of them is a is a personal tragedy and there was an amazing story um, from the Associated Press. I don't know if either of you read that about um, the journalists trying to get out of Mariupol um, and um, the Ukrainian soldiers coming and grabbing them from the hospital and saying, you've got to get out. Their worry was that if they were caught as the last two journalists in Mariupol by the Russians, uh, they would then be sort of paraded in front of the cameras and forced to say that all that they had been saying um, wasn't true. Um, Catherine, um, I wonder if you think that the bravery that we're seeing on our screens and reading about in print uh, might sort of reset some of the narrative about about journalism and what their role and function is. Well, it, it's come just to, as people have been uh, criticising journalists considerably, especially those working for the BBC and the whole institution of the BBC. And I think it may well reset. Uh, I... I I have never uh, worked in a war zone. I don't think Cole has either, but um, I I did report from one time from Northern Ireland during the Troubles. It is a very difficult situation to 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 be in, and in many ways, I think journalists have to put their 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 fears to one side. But the consequences of that are, um, I guess, post traumatic stress. And I can remember um, years ago, both Cole and I worked at the Independent. And there were journalists who worked on on what was called the night news desk, reporting on what went on late into the night, coming close to the last editions of the newspaper being printed, who would deal in the most extreme stories. So that would either be political sackings, resignations, or it would be ghastly incidents from around the world involving war or plane crashes or whatever. And some of them used to ask to step down from that job because they could only take it for so long, dealing um, day after day with human misery. And I, th I think 
that has an impact on journalists in, in the field. But I think it's when journalism becomes more than just a job. It, it, in many ways, it becomes a, almost a vocation, you could say, if we're talking mm. in rather religious terms. Mm. Mm. I, I mean, one of the reasons why I, I've never been a, a, a war journalist for the Nationals is that as a teenager and in my early 20s, I spent two years working for relief and development charities around the world. And during that time, got caught up in the Thai, Cambodian, Vietnam, Vietnamese army, uh, Khmer Rouge kind of dispute and got bombed and, and things like that. And and it, it gave me a sense of, I mean, it, it wasn't anything like, you know, a sustained war reporting gig, but it gave me a sense of the the kind of detachment and the kind of bravery and the kind of semi-foolishness that you need to do that. Um, and I, I'm not I'm not a big enough man to be able to do that or woman. Um, you know, I so I, I take my hat my hat off to them uh, absolutely. And, and one thing I think that has changed since since the since the times you were talking about with those reporters is that now there's a much greater emphasis on support and counselling and helping people when they come back from those situations. In in it used to be a, a kind of you had to tough it out and never talk about it, didn't it? If whether you were a crime reporter or a war reporter, but now I'm. I'm so pleased to see that there is so much support that's offered. The pressure, of course, is, is different because people have to just keep filing, don't they, nowadays, with 24-7 mm. news. I mean, the BBC mm. reporters are reporting on the news and on the radio, but they're also firing off copy to the website too. So there's this mm. endless pressure and tweeting as well to, to mm. come up with the goods. Mm. And you see, you mentioned, you know, they have to put their feelings to one side. I saw an extraordinary interview with Lise Doucette, who I think is, st is still there in uh, in the front line, saying, you know, it doesn't really matter what I think or what my emotions are. I just have to report what's in front of me. I mean... Their reports are quite emotional, though, aren't they? I mean, I think it's quite interesting that we're, we're not asking journalists to be detached. We're asking them to bear witness. And in doing so, they're sort of actually taking sides in in in, in a way. I think that's right. But when you see uh, images of what's happening, if you like, behind the scenes, where in their off time, you know, they're all cramped together in a basement, uh, eating together and sleeping together. Um, you know, I mean, if, if Lise Doucette was to let her real emotions in, she might well end up curled up in a ball crying in the corner. I would anyway. Let's, uh, let's move away from Ukraine now. Um... You had a story in the Sunday Times, Catherine, about the mother general of Tyburn Convent being reported to the Vatican for her anti-vaccine stance. Now, there are a whole host of stories that um, that came out of the Vatican that one could have reflected on. But the Sunday Times liked this one. Tell me how it came about. Well, I, wor I worked with a, a staff reporter from the Sunday Times on that story. You had got wind of something was going on at Tyburn Convent, uh, which is near Marble Arch in London, and it's very close to... The, the site of, of martyrdom during the Reformation at Tyburn. So this convent is very well known amongst Catholics in this country, and it has a great deal of resonance because of the name. And it has a, uh, a mother general with a strong personality, and it was being alleged that she didn't want her fellow nuns, she's effectively the boss, to have the COVID vaccines. And there'd been a great deal of concern about this and letters going to and fro between a bishop and uh, and the mother general. But eventually the Vatican got involved. Um, I think the Sunday Times was interested in it because it involved you know, a, a nun who's a bit of a maverick, um, quite a personality, but the nuns are enclosed, which a lot of people think is weird and mysterious. So it had the ingredients they wanted for a story. But they felt that they didn't know enough about religion, so they brought me in as a, a specialist to help them out get the story. Um, and I think that highlights that a lot of journalists are a bit at sea with uh, religion. Uh, and that obviously shows that the Religion Media Centre is really important. Do you think, Catherine, that in the past that might not have been the case in the sense that there might have been more religious literacy within the newsroom? Generally, there probably was. In a way, perhaps it was slightly more problematic because you'd have had a lot more people who were, say, nominal Anglicans um, who might think they know about religion because they're nominally Anglican, but actually they didn't know a lot about 
other Christian denominations. And most of us who come from that tradition certainly don't know very much about, uh, say, Islam or um, or Hinduism. And I think nowadays there at least is acknowledgement that we have a lot of different religions in this country. And some journalists at least need to get to grips with them. Absolutely right. I was really interested by a couple of things. I mean, it's a zinger of a story, Catherine. Well done. Um, obviously, the irony here is that the is that the Mother General, as far as I understand it, was one of the few people who was going outside the convent uh, for protests and things. So in terms of COVID getting into the convent, she was the main danger, I would have thought. And one thing I was interested in about her was that she... She didn't like doesn't like the vaccine because she says it 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 kills people. She, that's her claim. Um, whereas there've been a lot of uh, people of religious faith who have objected to the vaccine because they claim it's made from aborted fetuses. But that was not actually her view. Well, it's not one she expressed. Uh, she was saying that people had had, had died after taking the vaccine. Let's uh, just move on to a, another story, maybe um, also perhaps a little bit to do with religious literacy, but a rather nice one. Um, this is in The Telegraph, Leo, and it's about hot cross buns. I don't know how you like your hot cross buns. With butter and a lot of them. And and when do you start <laughs> eating them? Well, I Have mean, you had I, one yet? No, I haven't, actually. That's interesting. I haven't. But, uh, you yeah, I'm, I'm always open. Tell us about this story, Cole. This is this is the um, the uh, rather uh, ubiquitous um, priest, Gavin Ashenden. Yes, uh, layman. Now I think he's a Catholic layman. I believe he left left the Ang- Anglican priesthood. Uh, Doctor Gavin, how much do you want, and when do you want it, Ashton, Ashenden? Um, they are uh, apparently a sign of the devil at work. And uh, as someone who was allegedly speaking for Christians, he wants to say that this is a step too far. It's the sort of hot cross bun, isn't it? Tell us about the hot cross buns that he thinks of the devil's work. The ones I ate yesterday that have got chocolate in them. Uh, uh, I mean, he thinks that that is extravagant and takes us away from the origins, the Christian origins of the bun. Um, You know, this is a question of religious literacy, actually, because... It is arguable that the nature of the bun and the structure of the bun and the shape of the bun was was existing in pre-Christian times in pagan uh, circles in oh, among that. among Saxons. The four quarters are supposed to re- represent the the moon or the four seasons. So uh, you know Elizabeth David, that great authority, tells us that they weren't linked directly to Christianity until Tudor times. So I think Dr. Ashenden needs to do a little bit more work on his own religious literacy. I'm afraid I'm a bit of an Ashenden, Ashenden on hot cross buns. I, I don't eat them until uh, Good Friday. I certainly don't eat them the day after Christmas when the supermarkets start stocking them uh, alongside Easter eggs, which have been available since the day after Boxing Day, I think. I read that one of the supermarkets is doing uh, hot cross bun espresso martinis. It's probably taking it a bit too far. But I think, I think that, to... that qualifies you for the League of Militant Godless, Leah. Yeah, well, no, but I think you have to try really hard to be cross. But also I read that 5% is the amount of sales. It's gone up 5%. So therefore, if you think about it, it's actually a form of evangelization, isn't it? More people are eating cross buns, more people see the meaning. Besides which, you have to remember the old joke. You have to tell it. What happens if you throw boiling water down a rabbit hole? you get a hot cross bunny. (laughs) Rosie, Catherine, Cole, thank you very much. So now it's time for a roundup of all the local stories that we've been looking at uh, across the UK. And in the month that saw the Catholic Archdiocese of Southwark banning an author from speaking at a Catholic school because he and his books were said to fall outside what was permissible by the Catholic Church, the island of Jersey seems to be taking a very different tack. Every primary school in the island has been sent a collection of children's books, including one by that same banned author. It's called the Umbrella Book Collection, and it's designed to educate children about diversity, sexuality, race, and religion. Now, it also contains a humanist book explaining to children how you can live without God. Louise Dublay is from the Channel Islands Humanist Society, and she's also a deputy in the Jersey Parliament. She explained to me why it's so important to present children with a range of diverse views. So we at the Channel Islands Humanists have donated an additional book which was put into each of the boxes, and it's called What is Humanism? 
How do you live without a God and other big questions for kids? I love this book. In fact, I'm going to buy one for my five-year-old. There are lots of questions in there, like what does it mean to be a humanist? Is humanism a new idea? How do people live their lives without religious beliefs? And it features prominent humanists such as Stephen Fry and interviews with them and how they live their lives. I think in schools, children are often presented with Christianity and not always shown as many other worldviews and faiths and beliefs as I as I think they should be exposed to, because of course they should be informed about as many as possible. And when you look at the numbers of those with a religion and those without a religion, in Jersey actually, the last time we collected this data, they were actually exactly equal numbers of people with a religion as there are people with no religion in Jersey, and then a small percentage who weren't sure. And I'm expecting that when we collect this data again, that the data will show that the the majority of people in Jersey have no religion. So that's uh, Louise Dublé from the Humanist Society in Jersey. And she says there hasn't been an ounce of controversy and all the schools have welcomed the collection of books. And what's really interesting is when I was talking to Louise, she saw a tweet from a Catholic school in the island, delighted at the books they've received and showing a picture of the children holding them. This is how she reacted to that. I've just noticed on one of the schools, their, their social media feed, some photos of their pupils holding some of the books and saying how grateful they are to receive the books. And one of the books actually is by the, the author that was banned from the Catholic school in the UK. So I can say with absolute certainty that our community, um, including the Catholic community here in Jersey, is accepting of LGBT folk and um, welcoming of uh, diversity and I'm I'm so proud to be able to say that. Louise Dublé in Jersey. Now they're a completely different story now. Did you know that until relatively recently amateur boxers were not allowed to have beards? Fair enough you might say because well would a beard cushion a blow giving you an advantage in a fight? But what if your faith requires you to have a beard? Well, one man who is at the heart of the Beards in Boxing campaign is a Sikh boxer called Inder Basi Singh. He's now turned pro and he's enjoying an amazingly successful career. Still very much with his beard and his devout Sikh faith, I asked him how the Beards in Boxing campaign came about. Some guys, some lads from up north, they got in contact with me. They said, you know, there's this rule, do you know about it? I said, yeah, I do know about it. And, and unfortunately, I have to shave. They said, you know, we're going to try and get this overturned. I didn't think it was going to happen, if I'm honest. You know, they um, spoke with the board. They got medical, medical like um, professionals. They got legal professionals on board and they spoke with the British Boxing Board. And they were very um, attentive. They listened and they, and they got it overturned. Because having a beard is very much part of the faith. As Sikhs, we're not allowed to remove any hair, facial hair, body hair, um, or hair on your head. You know, we believe that God created you in an image in a certain way and we respect that and we, in, in turn, we keep our beard. Do you see yourself as a role model for young Sikhs coming through? I, I don't want to sound big-headed and say I'm a role model. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, kids look up to me. I'm an inspiration, but I do try and be a positive role model. I do try and do things where, you know, a young kid who might be the only Sikh boy or the only, you know, Indian boy in his year or in his school, you know, there's not many in some areas. He can think to himself, you know, if if oh look, there's a guy like me. If he can box, for example, I'm, I can do it. If he looks like me, he eats the same food as me. He's, he's he's from the same country as me. If he can do it, I can do it. So I do try and be a role model wherever possible, not even just to seek people, but to whoever you know, like they they just try and be a good person in general. Inder Bassi Singh, still very much a bearded Sikh boxer and good luck to him, hoping to be a champion, a British and European champion within five years. Now then finally, in our local roundup this week, did you know that for years, if not centuries, women have been discriminated against when it comes to playing church organs? Not simply because they were banned for such a long time, which of course they were, but because church organs and especially the bench you have to sit on to play are designed for men. It turns out most organ seats in many thousands of churches and cathedrals all over the country are not adjustable. They're absolutely static. And worse still, they're designed for men who are the average height of about five foot nine. Now, if you're following me, that means that most women of average height and slightly above 
can't actually reach the pedals on the floor. I can't believe I didn't know this, but it's absolutely true. Well, the Society of Women Organists has launched the ABC campaign, the Adjustable Bench campaign, hoping to persuade churches everywhere to either adapt or fit new benches to stop the discrimination. Marion Lees McPherson, an organist herself in Edinburgh, is the spokesperson for the Society of Women Organists. When you go to play an organ in a church, you know, a small church, you get there. If you're five foot three, like me, you will find that the bench is made suitably uh, for an average height man um, in the UK, which is five foot nine. And I'm the average height woman, which is five foot three. So every average height woman who sits on a bench made for an average height man will not be able to reach the pedals. When you turn up to a church or a cathedral where you're expected to play and you can't reach the pedals, what do you do? Do you wear special shoes? Yeah, I um, I wear high heel shoes, yes. With thick heels, not with stilettos. I know that you're very much in demand in Scotland where you live, playing at all sorts of occasions, weddings, funerals, whatever it happens to be. But are there churches where you literally can't play? There is one where I I just feel so precarious. Afterwards, I feel as if I've had sort of three or four rugby matches played in my insides. And actually, I don't think that I would want to go back and play there now. I think I played there when I was younger and braver. (laughs) I don't feel so so brave now. I feel more uh, (laughs) bolshy, more bolshy than brave. So there you are, Marion Lees McPherson feeling very bolshy about church organs. And if you want to find out more about the Adjustable Bench campaign, especially if your church organ bench is one of the guilty ones, you can check out the website societyofwomenorganists.co.uk. You're listening to the Religion Media Centre podcast with me, Leo Devine. It's time now for our big interview, and no surprises that the main story once again is the ever-worsening crisis in Ukraine. Here's Roger. Well, I'm joined by Rabbi Jonathan Romain from the Maidenhead Synagogue, who a couple of weeks ago called for a Ukraine transport in order to get refugees out of Ukraine to this country. And Jonathan, it's a personal thing for you as well, isn't it? You're the son of a refugee. Yes, uh, that's exactly right. So, I mean, like everybody, I was appalled by all the images on television. But there was also a sort of a, a personal reinforcement in the in two senses, really. Firstly, my own family history. My mother was one of those children on the kinder transport when Britain opened its arms to, I think, 10,000 Jewish children. And so she came here fleeing Nazi Germany, aged 11, strange country, didn't know a word of English. And but for that, she would have ended up like the rest of her family in the concentration camps and died and been killed and I wouldn't be here speaking to you. And and she was looked after by a wonderful Quaker family in, in, in Devon who sort of nurtured her and, and, and loved her. But it's also, I suppose, to be honest, uh, to do with Jewish ethics and, you know, uh, the, the, the lines, love your neighbour as yourself, um, do not stand idly by the blood of your neighbour from Leviticus. Uh, and, and they are also a sort of religious imperative which sort of drives my thinking. And what do you think of the initial response in terms of people volunteering? We're up to now, I think, about 150,000 people who've offered space in their homes. Did that surprise you? Uh, pleasantly, yes. I mean, it was really overwhelming. I mean, there, were, there was a 10-day period when I was literally getting an email every five seconds. And every time I answered one, another sort of four or five I came in. And, and it's really wonderful because it shows, you know, despite the cruelty that's going on over there, there's enormous kindness and compassion uh, over here. And it wasn't just people offering rooms. It was people offering really personal care. Um, I mean, to give a couple of examples, there was one uh, lady who wrote an email to me and said, um, look, you know, we're an elderly couple. uh, My husband has got kidney problems. He's on dialysis. I expected the next line to be, so we can't help but wish you well. Instead, she said, so if you have a Ukrainian refugee who's also got dialysis, make sure you send them to me because I know how to look after them and I can take them to hospital with my husband. Um, you know, going that extra mile, there was a, a lesbian couple 
from Wales who said, you know, why don't you send someone who's LGBT to us because we're much more perhaps user friendly and they will feel more at home uh, in our house rather than somebody else's. Uh, or, or a number of people wrote in to say, um, by the way, um, do um, send a family who, who need accommodation not just for themselves, but for their dog and cat, uh, recognizing that when you've lost your country, your home, your everything, that actually the family pet is enormously important and a tiny bit of sort of normality to take with you. And what re refugees want, I mean, obviously what they want ideally is to return to their own country as soon as possible. That is massively unlikely in the case of Ukraine. So what they want eventually, pretty soon really, is to be able to live relatively independently and to, and to settle into the society. And that means a whole raft of things, children, school, um, learning, driving licenses, getting their qualifications in Ukraine recognized in this country. So this isn't just an initial uh, effort that we have to make. This is a continual effort, isn't it? Yes, and that's why I suppose the government has said that it has to be for a minimum of six months commitment that you make, which I, I have to say did put off a lot of people who, who volunteered and said, well, we've got a cottage or we can have our spare room ready uh, to put someone up for a few weeks. Six months um, frightened off a lot of people because, you know, it's, um, it is a major commitment. So to have complete strangers for over half a year it is a big ask. And yet, on the other hand, the, these, the government doesn't want people to take people in for a, a few weeks and then they're out on the street and the whole problem sort of reverberates again. And, and you rightly say they need to be integrated uh, with medical services, nursery schools, getting a job. Uh, and therefore, that's why the government's asking for this minimum period. However, there is a bit of a black hole at the moment in the organization because uh, as you probably know you've got to name somebody uh, who you want to uh, host and, and most most of us don't know anybody in ukraine you know people have got the goodwill uh, and they want to help whoever needs it but they don't have anyone particular in mind so the, the missing link is almost like a sort of clearinghouse or or dating agency where the government or some refugee charity can match the those people coming over here with those people who are offering hospitality of course, the problem we've got as well is that there are already two groups of refugees in this country, apart from asylum seekers who are arriving on the beaches. We have the Syrians who came here as a result of that dreadful conflict and, and who many of whom have managed to get local housing and to start integrating. But we have Afghanis, the vast majority of whom are still stuck in hotels. And also large, a lot of them have large families, six and so on. So they're there as well. Is it possible to give one group preference over another to say Ukrainian refugees, for example, ought to have priority? Well, I mean, the reality is that it's partly due to the government because the government had this deliberate policy of not asking for family hosts for the Afghan refugees, but wanted to put them up in hotels. And that was government policy. Um, and I think they were caught by surprise by the overwhelming sort of uh, outburst of, of compassion in the country at large. Plus, there's, you know, the, the reality is, and this, you know, is that people have been, I suppose, feel identify more with Ukrainians simply because they're fellow Europeans. Um, it's not prejudice, but it's like affinity. Uh, so there's, that's a, perhaps a reason why there's been a different reaction to uh, the, the current refugee crisis to previous ones. Is that a little awkward? I mean, some people have pointed out, Muslims would say, for example, we didn't seem to be very interested in what were going on part of the Balkans because Muslims were suffering. Now, some would say, actually, Muslim organizations have been relatively quiet when it comes to what's happening in Ukraine. Do you think it's inevitable that we identify more closely with those who, for whom we are more closely connected. For example, you as a Jew, would you identify more closely with the Jews of Ukraine? Well, the honest answer is yes, of course. I'm not going to get on a sort of pious soapbox and say we should all love everybody because, yes, in theory, that's true. But the reality is we identify with people who are more like us, starting with family, then with friends. And there's a whole sort of range of sort of circles um, which get further and further. And um, so, you know, that is human nature. And particularly as we're asking people to take, we're not asking them to sort of give money, which by the way, a lot of people did for all the refugee um, uh, outbursts, but also actually take them into your home. And if you're going to have somebody in the bosom of your own life, you're going to want them to be as relatively close to, to you as, as possible. That, that's, um, that's just simple reality.
Of course, there's also a tendency in these circumstances to um, whitewash the past. And as a Jew, you must be concerned about uh, anti-Semitism in Ukraine. It's not uh, in the past, certainly, although it, of course, has a Jewish president. Uh, but, you know, Ukraine does not have the best record as on anti-Semitism, and lots of Central European countries don't. Does that give you, did that give you any pause? Do you think it gives any in the Jewish community pause when they're thinking about the plight of U Ukrainians? Uh, surprise rather than pause. In other words, you're quite right. Um, uh, during the Second World War, the Ukrainians had a bit of a dodgy record, and that's putting it very PC. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, up till this point, perhaps Jews in the West didn't naturally uh, identify with Ukrainians in the way that perhaps we uh, felt much more sympathetic to the Dutch. Um, uh, however, um, you know, we, 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 we don't live in the past. And, and I think Jewish people, along with everybody, have been, you know, shocked by what's been happening um, to the current generation. And, and we're not going to let the, uh, the sins of previous generations affect our response to uh, the plight of the people right now. Of course, as a religious leader, you have to answer the obvious question, where is God in all of this? Of course, it's not as terrible a question as it would have been to rabbis in Auschwitz and elsewhere, but it still for a lot of people is a real question. How can God let this happen? We thought we'd moved forward. We now seem to be moving back. So how do you answer that question? I suppose it depends what your view of God is. If your view of God is that uh, God is the person who controls the world, uh, is the puppet master and everything is God's will, uh, then he's got a lot to answer for. Uh, if, however, as I take the attitude, he's the person who sort of, he's the watchmaker who made the watch, wound it up, and then lets it tick tock, and, and that actually humans are the people who run Earth, and that we are masters of our own destiny, uh, then actually the blame is with us, or, or, or President Putin or, or, or others who caused these things to happen. And it's the inspiration of God that, if, uh, that uh, uh, impels uh, other people uh, to act with decency and courage and compassion. And finally, uh, Rabbi, if people are listening to this um, podcast and wonder how can they help, what would you recommend they should do? Lots of different ways, depending on people's situations. Yes, offer accommodation uh, or sponsor somebody else to have accommodation or send donations to one of the major refugee charities or collect items that not so much that can be sent over there because that actually isn't the most helpful, but that can be sent to uh, refugee centers or homes here in, in this country, uh, or even support somebody who's hosting a refugee um, and say, well, look, you're looking after them, but I can take them to, I don't know, Whipsnade Zoo or, or here or there on a shopping spree. Um, and there are all sorts of different things. Uh, so that, you know, that line that we all subscribe to, love your neighbor as yourself, isn't just a pretty phrase, but is actually a call to action. Bye-bye, Jonathan Romain. Thank you very much. Now back to Leo. You're listening to the Religion Media Centre podcast with me, Leo Devine. Still to come, Azim's academic, Dr. Azim Ahmed, is talking to Professor Apundajit Takar, President of Theology and Religious Studies UK. And we've got a wee bit of life laundry with Paul Carenza. This month, he's joined by comedian Milton Jones to chat about joy, something we could all do with right now. You're listening to the Religion Media Centre podcast. It's time now for Azim Academic, uh, presented by Azim, Dr. Azim Ahmed, uh, Deputy Director of the Centre for the Study of Islam in the UK. Hi, Azim. Which door of academia are you opening for us today? We have a very esteemed guest with us today, uh, Dr. Pindajit Takar. She's based at the University of Wolverhampton and is also the Director of Sikh and Punjabi Studies at the University and President of the Theology and Religious Studies UK Network. So I'm really pleased to be speaking to her today. Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Pindajit. Thank you, Azim. Thank you, everyone. So let's get started. You're Director of the Centre for Sikh and Punjabi Studies. Um, can you tell, a bit about the, uh, tell us a bit about the centre and its research? Yep, so the Centre for Sikh and Punjabi Studies, it's the only academic centre of its kind, not just here in the UK, but actually across Europe. So this centre was set up by the university back in 2018, and it really became operational in about 2019, so it's pretty new. 
Um, and this was to kind of more so in line um, with the with, with, with all universities emphasis at the moment around place, community and regional representation. Right. And I mean, I imagine some might hear Sikhism and uh, a religion and Punjabi, a language or an ethnicity placed together. They might be surprised to see them in one sentence for a research centre. I mean, can you tell us a bit about the relationship between them? Yeah, absolutely. So so just at the outset, I'd like to clarify that there's a a growing debate around dropping the ism when we talk about the Sikh faith. So mm-hmm. I'll refer to it as Sikhi, um, which very much emphasises that the Sikh faith is a way of life. It's not somebody something that somebody does at a certain point in the week, etc, etc. So for that reason, um, the Centre for Sikh and Punjabi Studies uh, Punjabi is the language, or Punjab as a region, um, is the region in India that the majority of Sikhs um, actually um, uh, have a, um, a heritage to, actually have a link to. And so for this reason, um, the, the, the centre was named Sikh and Punjabi Studies in recognition of the fact, actually, that Wolverhampton has the second largest Sikh community outside of West London. And actually, the Punjabi language is the most is the second most spoken language in Wolverhampton itself. Um, and in the census of 2011, uh, Punjabi was actually the second most spoken language in the UK. Um, and so we've yet to see the results of the census 2021. Uh, but let's see, you know, whether it can reclaim that second position. And I'd really like to emphasize that Punjabi is not just spoken by Sikhs themselves. Punjabi is a language that is spoken by all people who trace their heritage and linkage back to that to that region, be that now in Pakistan or be that now in India. I mean, I think one of the fantastic things about the kind of answer you gave is it helps us challenge those ideas of what religion is. And in a way, that kind of leads on to my next question. So you recently became president of Theology and Religious Studies UK, TRS UK. So can you tell us a bit about the organisation and what it does? Yep. So uh, Theology and Religious Studies UK, known as TRS UK, it's actually the professional subject association for uh, departments of theology, the study of religion or religious studies um, in universities across the UK. So this has many affiliated members, many affiliated organizations and bodies. Um, It also works uh, very well with kind of, you know, um, schools as well, you know, in the sense of, you know, especially the current debate around, you know, whether the the term religious education should be replaced by worldviews, et cetera. So I've been involved in some of those conversations as well. But yeah, I was absolutely delighted delighted to be um, elected as its first president, actually its first president female um, of colour, actually. Um, so, you know, that, that very much emphasises that there is, you know, that there is a lot to do in how the, 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 the disciplines of theology and religious studies, you know, illustrate that diversity and inclusivity. One of the things those outside of academia might not know um, is despite religion being so prominent in headlines and in current affairs, religious studies departments are undergoing a bit of a crisis. Um, I mean, do you see there being a future for religious studies in universities in the UK? Absolutely, I do. Um, But I think we have to kind of address changing the terminology that we use in universities as well. So uh, many universities, um, especially here in the UK now, are kind of adopting um, uh, titles that reflect more the curriculums at GCSE and A-level as well. So uh, religious studies as a title itself, I think there's probably very few departments that, that retain that, that title religious studies. And the majority are kind of going you know, down the, down the trajectory trajectory of around the study of religion or philosophy, religion and ethics. Theology departments, as far as I know, have managed to retain, you know, the the title of theology. But, you know, again, this relates back to student recruitment at the end of the day. You know, um, religious studies itself sometimes comes across as being quite a confessional subject, where actually it's not. It's a highly analytical, a highly, um, de- you know, a, a, a discipline in which, you know, we debate around current issues. We debate around that whole concept of lived faith. 
faith or lived belief, lived religion, however we, we, we define that. So in that respect, you know, kind of maintaining religious studies as a title sometimes brings across that whole connotation that one has to be a believer in order to be able to take part. Absolutely not. This is about analysing what's around. And, you know, here at the University of Wolverhampton, we actually have a module on atheism and non-belief within um, our our overall offering as well. I mean, that kind of uh, what you mentioned there about analysing religion, I mean, that's often the role as well of journalists um, and anyone in society, really. I mean, would there be any advice you'd give to someone who, you know, isn't an academic, is is trying to understand religion? How can they, you know, begin to approach it in a way which helps them understand what's going on? I would very much say that in order to really get to grips, we know how religion interacts with society, how religion is actually, you know, in in, in and around us, you know, all the time, one really needs to focus on that lived aspect of it. Um, So, you know, yes, of course, you know, textbooks are there to guide us, etc. But we very much need to also emphasize that, you know, we find faith or belief or, you know, we find it in the supermarket, say, for example, in the choice of foods that we are going to buy. You know, supermarkets having kosher sections, halal sections, etc, etc. We find it in our kitchens at home, in the type of food we cook, how we cook it, the, the, the times of day, for example, that we cook it, you know, whether there's any in the Gurdwara, for example, you know, the reciting of, you know, Sikh religious teachings when when the langar is being cooked. So I would very much emphasize that in order to understand religion, we really need to have to really step into society you know, and a multicultural, even a multicultural street, you know, somewhere like Soho Road in Handsworth or the Broadway in Southall, you know, it really gives one a flavor um, through the different, uh, through the rich variety that we have in belief, faith and practice all around us here in the UK. Thank you so much. I mean, we covered so much ground there and I wish I could speak to you longer. Um, I know that we'll have opportunities to hopefully revisit some of your work in the future. Um, those who are interested can find your research on uh, your website. We have the Centre for Sikh and Punjabi Studies website. So if, if one Googles um, Centre for Sikh and Punjabi Studies, a link, link will come up for that. And I'm also on Twitter at Dr. Apindaji. Um, and also the Centre feed is at WLV Uni Sikh. Very struck by what you were saying, uh, Pindajit, insofar as that if we don't really understand faith, then we don't really understand community. And often it's a way of reaching out to often marginalised communities as well, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, community, society, belief, practice, it all very much goes hand in hand, you know, which, you know, really takes me back to that whole whole terminology around tolerance. You know, we talk about tolerance and I really don't feel that has a place in understanding others' faiths and beliefs. Tolerance is we have to put up with somebody. You know, I think we should really adopt something like peaceful coexistence, mutual understanding, respect and absolutely drop that that terrible term tolerance. Well, that's a lovely note to end on, Apindajit. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you to Azim as well. And if you'd like to know more about the work of the Religion Media Centre, you can find us at religionmediacentre.org.uk. That's religionmediacentre.org.uk. So we've nearly reached the end of this month's podcast. But before we finish, we need to hang out some life laundry with Paul Carenza. And this month, Paul, you've got an award-winning comedy veteran. So I guess that makes two veterans. Well, two veterans make, uh, in theory, a conversation about, well, joy is what I'm hoping, or at least finding it in these rather tough times. Uh, So we are delighted to, to welcome star of Mot the Week and countless Radio 4 series with his own name in Milton Jones. Hello, Milton. Hello, it's nice to be a veteran. I, I, rather than a car, more like a Vietnam vet, I like to think of it. Uh, I, I don't know, you've been spreading joy for several decades now on the, on the stand-up circuit and on radio and TV. Um, and personally, as a timeline now, I'm meant to be a professional entertainer and I found it rather tough lately to try and find joy and, 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 and spread joy. Um, does it feel, is it more important than ever now? And what's, what's the burden on someone like yourself? You've got the dates booked in. Uh, how do you bring this joy to the stage and to people? Well, it depends who you talk to, whether I bring it or not. But um, uh, yes, there were times during lockdown that I thought to myself, I do what for a living? It seemed a very long way away. Um, uh, Since being back on tour, though, it's a bit like fasting, I suppose, in that 
once you stop doing something you're used to doing and you leave it for a long time, you really appreciate it when you go back to it. And I think it's true that the people who actually turn up at shows now have a sort of heightened energy uh, because they haven't been together for a long time. Having said that, I did Glasgow the other week, and it was a good half hour before anyone heckled me, which is really unusual in Glasgow. You know, Normally, you don't get to the microphone before someone shouts something. So uh, they're a bit reticent, but... Yeah, what is a joy? I was trying to think of a definition. I don't think there is one particular helpful definition. But in terms of what we do, you know, standing up and things, I was thinking it's it's um, joy is laughter without an agenda in that, you know, laughter doesn't necessarily have to be a good thing in my book. You know, you can have bullying laughter. You can have cynicism in the form of laughter. Um, but something that is just uh, joy is it doesn't have is not trying to make you do something in particular. I mean, you can argue that satire uh, has a message, but I don't know about you. When someone begins to preach on stage, obviously it's not in a Christian sense necessarily at all, but politically, say, I sort of lose interest a bit because <laughs> uh, I can see where the message is coming from. And here we go. You know, this is your agenda. You're literally preaching to the converted here. And they may do it in a satirical way. But then I think if that works, it's more to do with the truth. Um, often, you know, people suddenly go, yeah, yeah, you've nailed it there. I remember years ago seeing Eddie Izzard do a routine. And this was like in the Gulf War years ago. And he talked about, you know, those amazing new missiles that they've got now where they don't kill anyone, they just go up to the front door and they ring the doorbell and they check who's in and then they go up the stairs and then they explode at the right person. But it was like a really nice satirical take on what we weren't being told and we all knew it. And I thought, yeah, that that is the truth and you've played with that. But you see someone like Tim, Tim Vine, you know, um, I've said before, you know, that I think the, the pitch of the laughter and the sound of the laughter sounds different because it's all just nonsense at the expense of no one. Well, it seems to be with someone like Tim Allen did yourself that it's like fun first and foremost. And and that's your primary reason for being there and the, and the primary thing that's happening when you, you listen and, and feel part of that room. And indeed watch it on TV or, or on the radio. It's it's not an agenda, as you say. It's it's just about that extra level of something that I guess at the minute in a time of rather gloomy news, I guess we need that, do we? Yes, I mean, I think so. I mean, I don't know about you, I tend to do it on autopilot a lot of the time and you don't actually realise until someone sort of breaks into your world, be it on social media or stops you in the street and goes, oh, I really liked it when you did this. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the time, if I'm honest, I'm doing it for my peers as much as anything. You know, I want sort of a good review from people who I respect within the business and that's a danger of any industry, I think. Uh but yeah, no joy. I mean, I was trying to think. Uh, also, you know, dictators and certain people in authority um, aren't able to laugh at themselves. And I think it's uh, a thing that a comedian does. Often, he takes on Christ-like is the wrong term entirely. But if you create a world where you are the butt of the joke then you become a sort of cipher for the audience's imagination. And they can get out a lot of stuff that perhaps has got blocked up. You can become an air brick to, to let out. I mean, I think British people are particularly bad at sort of withholding their emotions. And so sometimes a comedian coming on the stage, the laugh is far bigger than the joke. I don't know if you find sometimes, especially just going out now after COVID, you know, I think that, that got a massive laugh, but actually, I'm not sure the joke even deserved that. But you're, you've touched something inside them that's let out a load of other stuff. Um, and maybe that's why in France and Italy they don't have a cabaret circuit. You know, they don't need it because they, they're far more instantaneous with their emotions. It's a different attitude, I suppose. And we do respond in the moment, of course, to these things. So the, the, a room now is different from a room three or four years ago, not just a comedy mm. room, but even you walk into a pub or a cafe and you want that sense of... Because it's not just professionals, is it? Like yourself, it's on a daily basis, I guess, everyday folk, as we meet again as a community, I wonder if we almost need that philosophy of joy, even a 
a theology of joy if you're a religious person you know i I see is, is joy a god-given thing i don't know and do we therefore have a, almost a moral duty to try and and help spread it uh, yes i mean it probably doesn't help to think about that moral duty while you're doing it <laughs> but it's an attitude isn't it it's an attitude of of i think i was trying to draw a venn diagram of it earlier and it it's a mixture between humility and pride in that you have a sense of your own failing but also enough childlike innocence to talk about the things that go wrong as much as the things that go right. You have to have a sense of your own finite mortality and we're all not as good as we think we are sometimes, but you can play with that idea. Well, to, to make you feel at home, that's why I've given you a terrible intro here. So uh, really, really <laughs> down, downplayed it. But um, what, what, do you, what do you think, Leo? Are we, am I overthinking this? Are we overthinking? Should we just be trying to have fun? Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'll tell you what, I was, I was reminded of C.S. Lewis, you know, the Christian writer who wrote a book called Surprised by Joy. He was talking about his wife, of course, but he wrote Real Joy. I've just found this. Real Joy jumps under one's ribs and tickles down one's back and makes one forget meals and keeps one delightedly sleepless. And I think that's a really good kind of uh, summation of what joy actually is. Mm. Hmm. The, the other place I could recommend for onward viewing is uh, on iPlayer still is Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama, uh, Mission Joy, it's called. And seeing them spanning faiths, talking about joy as missional, I think is a, is a marvellous thing. Inspiration for us all. Yes. yes. Well, I'm feeling particularly joyful now. Paul and Milton, thank you so much. So that is it for this month's podcast. Um, And I've still got Roger with me. And it's so sobering to be talking about refugees in 2022, Roger. It is. And we'll be talking about them for a long time to come, I think. But on the other hand, just look at the past. Refugees have enriched this country immeasurably. I think this may enrich a lot of people's lives in this country. You wouldn't wish this tragedy to be occurring. But I think it would bring a great sense to a lot of people in this country that there is something we can do. And it may even bring some joy and new friendships as well. Let's hope so. Roger and all of the team, Azim, Rosie, Paul, everybody, thank you so much. And of course, our guests as well. Thank you for listening. Please join us again for the Religion Media Centre podcast next month. The Religion Media Centre is an impartial and independent organisation providing an expert resource for the media and other interested parties to help the reporting and understanding of religion and beliefs. You can find news, fact sheets, briefings and lots more on the website at religionmediacentre.org.uk where you can also sign up for a daily roundup of stories about religion and belief from the UK and around the world straight to your inbox. If you'd like to support the podcast and the work we do, contributions are very welcome. Thank you if you do, have or will. It all helps us continue to tell the stories that matter and it's hugely appreciated.